right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Helper. So, a uh, big week in news, in politics, in coronavirus. Let's do the four food groups, as always, first. Democrats suck. Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? For Democrats suck, I think we just got to go with the, the Hillary-Biden interaction and... Uh, the, this is she she went went to the this is a terrible crisis it would be a terrible crisis to waste place uh dan if we could see that video in her, the town hall that she did with uh with joe biden this is a high stakes time uh because of the pandemic but this is also a really high stakes election and every form of health care should continue to be available including uh, reproductive health care for every woman uh, in this country. Uh, and then it needs to be part of a much larger system that eventually and quickly, I hope, gets us to universal health care. So uh, I, I can uh, only uh, say amen to everything you're saying, but also to, again, enlist people that this would be a terrible crisis to waste, as the old saying goes. We've learned a lot about what our absolute uh, frailties are in our country when it comes to health justice and economic justice. Okay, there's a couple of things about this. First of all, like, we should probably just talk about the, the, the general humor of uh, Hillary endorsing Biden, like like that's going to be a game changer. But uh, Hillary is, is quoting a Rahm Emanuel quote from back in the Obama years, which was a quote that he used to refer to the economic crisis. Uh, and essentially it was politically you have to make, you know, lemons out of lemonade out of lemons when you have. But it, it was kind of an infamous quote because, you know, nobody wants to hear that you want to use uh, a disaster to take political advantage of something. So the tone deafness of this is like multifaceted because she's 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 quoting something that was already like not a good idea to begin with uh, and thinking that. You know, just because it's famous and and everybody uh, remembers the quote, that it's actually going to be received positively. It's just, again, there are certain things you just can't say when you're talking about uh, situations like this. You know, there's just widespread death, misery, dis disruption, right. and you you can't, especially in the context of Hillary Clinton strategically throwing her weight behind. Joe Biden, uh, let me show you my expertise in how to win elections by talking cynically about how to take advantage of the corona. It's right. just, it's so yeah. It's so there's so many up. levels, and also she's quoting a very uh, an infamous person, like who represents right. the worst of the Democratic Party, who's been disgraced even among like by his fans. I mean, I think that because of his handling of the um, Laquan McDonald shooting. You know, so it's it's a, it's so off on so many levels. It's almost right. as if Hillary Clinton had quoted herself uh, the basket full of de basket of deplorables or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, as somebody once said, you know, a third yeah, of the exactly. country is a basket of deplorables. Like yeah. you, you wouldn't want to go there. Why go there? Right. You know? Yeah, it is. So. It shows exactly. It does show this utter tone deafness. And I actually what's funny is I totally agree. Even on a moral level, I agree with her. Like you can't. um you should be turning crises into, I mean, let's be honest, I've said that about maybe the upside of this is that it, it really shows how important Medicare for all is. But I would never say that, <laughs> except I just did. If I were a politician, I wouldn't say that. Right. Um, and I certainly wouldn't say that, especially sitting next to a guy who's, who's not doing what could be the really important thing. The guy who's like being super 
moderate, unnecessarily moderate in a time of crisis. Like, right. he's right. right, but he's not doing it. And she wouldn't do it either, I'm sure. I somewhat agree with the sentiment. I think this the coronavirus is teaching us all kinds of things about how much our work-centric lives suck and how much <laughs> how many things we do that are unnecessary that we can maybe stop doing, like spending half of our lives getting to work and, and you know, uh, not spending time with our families and all that other stuff. But that doesn't mean I'm going to get on television in the context of, en- of endorsing a presidential candidate and saying we can't we can't let this crisis go to waste. Right, as someone right. once as someone infamous once said. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as the worst of our party once said. And also, as uh, we can't let this crisis go to waste, uh, Joe Biden, uh, while Medicare for all is increasingly uh, popular and you are refusing to get behind it. Right, right. Uh, two other two other quick things about this. One is that uh, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but it certainly is an interesting visual. It looks like Biden falls asleep in the middle of this confab with Hillary. Dana, can, you can, can you blame him? Can you blame him? That's true. America, our women, and one out of three jobs held by sleeping? women in our country <laughs> has been classified as essential. So this is an issue that affects all of us, uh, young and old, every kind of America. He's either yeah. sleeping, praying, or trying to remember what the his website is. <laughs> right, yeah, this is 303030. Yeah, exactly. I have an off-brand for myself take, sure. which is that um, I thought that this was terrible for Biden and kind of amazing for Hillary because I tweeted something along these lines, but Biden and Hillary are not are very comparable politically right maybe a little different in foreign policy stuff but they're pretty comparable and their affects i mean are not very different i mean she has a, this very midwestern accent and he has a i don't know slightly midwest but pennsylvania accent they're pretty similar whereas with biden and bernie who we were used to seeing during the primary and during the debates they're so different stylistically and politically, right? Like they 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 don't overlap a lot politically. Bernie Sanders has this like very strong, you know, as you know, New York accent. New York accent uses the hands a lot. Biden doesn't do any of that. So I actually thought when I saw Hillary next to him and heard her next to him, they just highlighted each other's contrasts. So she, he just came off as incredibly slow, like slower than usual. Because Hillary, say what you will about her, and she does quote evil people without realizing how that comes off. She's a fluent speaker and she's and, smart. And, and, and biologically alive. Yes, and fully alert, as, uh, <laughs> as uh, uh, Chris Cuomo uh, praised Biden for being during one debate, fully alert the entire <laughs> fully time. Alert, yes. Um, and she is fully alert. Um, and, and so she comes out, I think she sounds extremely, you know, say what you will about her, rational, reasonable, in control of her facilities. And he comes off as even less than usual because of that, what should be more of a parallel than it is because of the You're right. positive it, stuff. It, it's a reverse Dan Quayle. Remember uh, George H.W. Bush when he nominated Dan Quayle, everyone was like, why are they doing that? He's uh, Dan Quayle is the biggest lightweight in history. The guy can't spell potato, what's going on? Actually, it was brilliant because next to Dan Quayle, George Bush, you know, he looked like a cross between, you know, Shakespeare and Niels Bohr or something like that, yeah. right? the ultimate genius. But this is, this is, this is the opposite. You stand, he's, he's standing next to an alert, functioning, competent person who is not a good contrast for Joe. I thought you're Extreme, absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, extremely admit, like, de- you know, she's wonky and wonkish. Um, you know what else was interesting is that, and Natalie Shore um, tweeted something about this, about how, how much 
Natalie Shore is not, she's like a, a leftist feminist who is disturbed by Hillary's brand of feminism and does not like her politics. And she's a big Medicare for all person. Um, but she tweeted that, that Hillary really came off well uh, and more natural in this context. And I do think that's true. I think she came off much better than, than she does when she's, you know, in other contexts. And I remember that Pat, I heard Pat Buchanan say this once. He was kind of like, you know, Hillary in real life comes off as very warm. She's warm and charming. And on television, she doesn't come off that way. She also so. swears like a longshoreman from what I understand. Really? See, yeah. I feel like I'd like Hillary if we saw the real Hillary. I mean, yeah. I hate her politics, but I'd like her personality. Mm -hmm. Are you not surprised that I'm saying this? Isn't well, no, I, 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 it's a little shocking, but I think it's true. It's, it, it came out in the speeches that were released in 2016 when she's talking to Goldman Sachs. She's definitely, she's so much more at ease and comfortable and open when she's talking to people who she considers her people. And, and actually, you, you, can, you can follow the rationale of a lot of what she's saying, but she's, it's, it's when she's speaking to, you know, the unwashed that this other thing comes up and it's very difficult to connect with so right and i actually uh, i liked her as as perf i liked when she was like what difference does it make you know during the benghazi thing i think that's kind of the real hillary clinton and i think she was told to soften her image um and it backfired and i think she was going to lose all the people who thought of her as a like a strident complaining shrill woman um anyway so she might as well have like done her thing that's probably true yeah and what do we have for republican suck so for republican suck it's funny matt matt and i we've had a little bit of a debate about how much better non-trump people would be than trump over the coronavirus and um because you and i agree and we, we talk about this all the time that uh trump as bad as he is and he's awful often is kind of inappropriately blamed for things in other words, like the, the Russiagate stuff, right? It distracts from all the real things that he's, he's doing that are truly reprehensible. Um, and I do think that MSNBC going from nonstop coverage of Russiagate to nonstop coverage of isn't Trump an idiot, which I think that point has been sufficiently made and not doing any kind of original reporting about it, just talking about the same thing again and again is very dangerous. But I also do think it's dangerous to have Donald Trump in office. And uh, this is... Um, Trump, as you guys probably know, he made an interesting medical suggestion, and then he tried to claim he was being sarcastic and walking it back. So here, here we go. Can you clarify your comments about injections of disinfectant? They're, they're quite No, I was asking a question sarcastically to reporters like you, just to see what would happen. Now, disinfectant for doing this, maybe on the hands, would work. The disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see. But the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's uh, that's pretty powerful. So that's an amazing clip. Um, on so many levels. And I do think it does speak to Trump's unique failures uh, in this moment. It's hilarious. He off, I'm sure, I think that was off the cuff. I think he thought of it in the moment. Totally. Right? And it's good, good you know, it could have been worse. He could have said it definitely works. Like he was pretty caught, for Trump, he was very cautious about it. For him, he's being like, we'll have to check in with medical doctors, which for him is pretty humble. 
I'm, so, I'm sorry. This guy went to Wharton, Wharton. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He went to a pretty good school. Yeah. For business. Yeah. None, none, nonetheless. I know, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make, as you said, make lemon, uh, lemonade out of lemons. I mean, the guy's a disaster. And, and this, is, this is what I've been saying about this, you know, that he is uniquely bad at, at this issue or on this issue. But people have been calling in. This is what's scary. People have been calling in to ask about that, to see if it's doable. So when I, when I first heard this story, I, I actually did assume that, that it was done a l somewhat more in jest than, than, uh, than they were reporting. And then I played, the, so I read it before I saw it. I played the tape and I was like, oh my God, he actually said that shit. Like, you know, he's insane. And, and it's unfortunate because there's, there's multiple dynamics going on here. One is the, the press is just completely gone haywire with the story and they're they're reverse engineering everything so everything that the administration says everything that trump says is automatically wrong and, there, and all kinds of things are happening that are bad because of that but then trump will say something like this and i just don't know how i don't know how you even cover it i mean like it, it's it's it really does come close to screaming fire in a crowded theater like it's 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 i'm like a free speech absolutist right like i'm, I'm like one of these people who believes that you know you should never have any any but that's like that's on on the, on the border of a of a criminally irresponsible thing to say in public that's as bad a trump moment as right. we've had I so think. that is an example again that is an example of how uniquely terrible he is at this and also i think it's an example of not to at all like vin uh, exonerate him, but how the media's constant kind of relentless attacks on him, which it's okay to be relentless, but attack him on the right things. Because again, what we've seen, I think this entire time is that the things that should stand out as totally egregious, totally unacceptable, don't because they've been saying unprecedented existential threat about things that weren't that. And I'm not even saying he's not an unprecedented existential threat. I'm just saying that he didn't, you know, the collusion, the conspiracy stuff, they, they just blew their wad on that. To be fair, to put the most pos positive possible spin on it, he's trying to be positive, right? He's, he's trying to say, that, you know, hey, there's things that we can do to fight this virus. Well, you know, what if, what if we just, you know, instead of putting it on the outside of our bodies, put it on the inside? Would that work too? Like, you know, right. he was free freestyling like a rapper or something he, like that, I, right? Oh, yes, he is a rapper who freestyles. He has really good uh, owns, like really good digs. Um, right. He is. He would win battles, MC battles, no question. Right, but that's she, she just can't go there. You can you, People are watching this shit. You can't. You, you can't tell them that they, we, we can't even and, suggest injecting. And also, I'm. But as a you know, my lowered expectations make me so, make me so impressed with Trump for just saying maybe that would work, right? As opposed to the Trump that that I know and hate would actually say this is going to work. This works. Just do yeah, it. it's it's going right? to be a game changer. Yeah, yeah exactly. for him, yeah. for him, this is very very self. This is very understated, right. and not surprisingly, um, people have uh, been calling. There's been poison control center calls spike after spiked after he said that, and Gar Governor Larry Hogan um, of Baltimore point uh, Maryland, sorry you know, said when misinformation comes out or you just say something that pops in your head, it does send a wrong message. And we have hundreds of calls come into our emergency hotline at our health department asking if it was right to ingest Clorox or alcohol cleaning products, whether that was going to help them fight the virus. So we had to put out that warning. They had to put out a warning to make sure that people were not doing something like that, which would kill people, which 
again, I'm impressed that people called in to check. Right, they could have just like, done it. If I drink bleach, what's gonna, is anything bad going to happen? Like, that's America. It's just awesome. Exactly. So I yeah. think, you know what? It's bringing out the best in our country. It's bringing right. out caution and Trump, caution and, and inquisitiveness and, and grit and um, industriousness and, uh, you know, just b being very proactive, like making that call, reaching out. And also another thing that happened is that, according to the Washington Post, the uh, intelligence agencies warned President Trump about the threat of the coronavirus in over a dozen classified briefings in January and February. The warnings came in the president's daily brief, which Trump regularly skips reading, according to the Post's sources. Despite the warnings, the president continued to downplay the severity of the threat into February. And that's, me, that's a, from Democracy Now! that I'm reading, which, again, I think speaks to What's interesting is you met last week or the week before you you've been saying like Trump is as much to blame for this as the, as Bush for 9-11. And I my my thing was like, well, he was to blame for that in, some, in large part because of the presidential daily briefings. Right. Which said uh, Osama bin Laden determined to attack the United States, which we can debate that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe they got like a thousand of those a day about other fundamentalists, former allies of the uh, United yeah, States. But right. But it is a similar, it's interesting because it's a similar thing. And, and uh, I think Bush didn't read those either. But, but I think the difference between Bush and Trump is that Bush probably had Dick Cheney read them and, and summarize, give him like footnotes. So this is probably a, a topic we should, we should take up at a different time. But there's two things here. Number one, the, the whole thing about Trump skipping his presidential daily briefing. Uh, I actually, that's one of the things I liked most about Donald Trump is that when he came into office, all these intelligence goons, uh, told him that he had to have a meeting with them every morning and be briefed by them. And he's like, no, fuck you. I'm the president. I'll do whatever I want. And you know what? That's the, he, he, it's, it's important to put those people in their place. And it's probably not necessary to have those people in his ear, you know, every single day for an hour, an hour and a half. And they leaked that story immediately, which was completely, right. uh, you know, insubordinate and wrong. And uh, those guys suck for that. And the, other, and, and the other thing I'll say about that is if you go back and look, in January and February, you'll find that most experts uh, at the time, or not most, many, were, were telling reporters, uh, no, this is it's going to be as bad as, as flu. You'll, you'll find a host of headlines about all of that. Like, we can go through all that. Experts are wrong. So I, I'm much more sympathetic to the idea that he didn't foresee an, you know, an unprecedented event than I am, uh, you know, that he's suggesting that we inject a uh, uh, carpet cleaner to, uh, to get, get, get past this. Okay. For, isn't that terrible? So a new media trope has appeared in the, in the middle of this um, crisis, which is we're reporting on a legitimate story, which is that the meat processing plants um, have become places where there's, we've seen a lot of people get infected from the disease, probably because pe people are working in very close quarters. But it's become a new, uh, a, a, a new common media scare story to just show us terrible pictures of meat, right? So a, a thing that's been a, a, a factor in American life forever, which is that we live in this completely disgusting system where there are these massive sort of pig Auschwitz facilities. And I've been in some of these places. They're just horrifying, right? Uh, but we don't, you know, we didn't ignore it. We didn't pay any, any attention to that until now when we have a few we have a few sick workers. Now suddenly there's all this questioning, hey, is it a good thing to be having these 
horrific, disgusting uh, facilities and that and living this way. And we've just seen one uh, horrifying p- picture after another of uh, of what these what these places look like. And Dan, if we could just see a couple of those. So multi multinational meat farms could be making us sick. So this is a story in the American Conservative, and the photo comes from the Washington Post. And what they're what they're showing us pictures of are, th- are things called CAFOs, which are concentrated animal feeding operations. And I've I've actually taken a couple of tours of places like this. They're they're mostly talking about about it with pigs, but I've seen it also with other animals. Essentially, they're just they're just gigantic factory-style slaughterhouses, and they're the most horrifying things you could possibly imagine. Like if if you ever go in it, and now all of a sudden you're seeing debates in in the press about wow maybe maybe we shouldn't have been living this way all this time uh and we're seeing one picture of another uh, after another like this can we just describe what what is actually in that that photo oh i'm sorry yeah what's in that photo it's just it's just a disgusting picture of a conveyor belt of of just random pig body parts and people you know most most of them masked but uh, but apparently some of them aren't in some of these uh, environments, and most uh, of the workers are masked. Yeah, not work, the pigs, workers yeah. work no, workers are masked, not the pigs. But it's a, these are pictures, kind of pictures. If we looked at them every single day, no one would ever meet meat again. Uh, right. And it's 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 just it's just interesting to me that this is suddenly it's not the conditions in the factory that are the story. The pictures are all directed at the meat, which is an unchanged facet of our culture right right uh, but we're not discussing the virus specific aspect of the story i just think right. that's interesting everybody's we're supposed to be scared of pictures of meat well it's funny because it reminds me of what hillary said earlier not to quote hillary the way that hillary quoted Rahm Emanuel and t- taint the message but this could be a good thing i mean i actually think this is one of the examples of how we could turn a crisis into have something good yes. come from this right because i think that it is time for us to take on or look at the disgusting um, meat industry. And we should have on our good friend, uh, Glenn Greenwald. But yeah. I mean, I, I love pigs. <laughs> That's why I don't, eat, I don't eat red meat. I don't eat pork or beef or because I love pigs. That's what started it. They're smart. They're cute, hypoallergenic. And this is just awful. And I'm not like, you don't have to be vegan to want there to be a human, humane animal. May, I don't know what the word is humane uh, way of killing animals, even if, you know what I mean? Like, I think we probably shouldn't be killing them or we should do it on a like farm to table way, but this is disgusting and unjustifiable and just cruel. Right. And from an environmental standpoint, uh, everybody would tell you that if you have uh, family farms that are taking care of a hundred pigs at a time, that that's way less dangerous to the, to the environment than having these massive slaughterhouses where the, the waste of thousands and thousands of pigs is being dumped in these lagoons that spill out into the environment. Right. But I guess the point I'm trying to make here is a little bit subtle, which is that the, a lot of the news agencies are are trying to scare the crap out of us yeah. with every aspect of of the coronavirus story, right? The, and 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 so and so what they're doing is they're they're taking pictures of something that was always horrifying, that was always part of our lives, and they're implying that it's that it's somehow part of this new 
reality that we're in, whereas it's not. It's it's something that we've always been part. Of. No, I agree with you that I, you know I've, I've been a vegetarian many like at various points in my life. I'm not one now, but um, it's I do think we need to change, and I think these the lagoons are are totally a, right. a public health risk. But what they're doing in the press with 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 these images. Um, is, is it is manipulative in a yeah. way that it, it and it's it's political in a weird way too like I, i'm not really sure what they're up to but but anyway what do we have for isn't that weird okay so for isn't that weird we have a story that um about de blasio viewers and listeners may remember that a couple weeks ago i think my isn't that weird or isn't that terrible was about how zoom meetings were being interrupted by obscenities and people with swastika tattoos. And this is kind of that equivalent, but in the form of a hotline. If we could just play the video, Dan, please, at the top of this story. When you see a crowd, when you see a line that's not distant, when you see a supermarket that's too crowded, anything, you can report it right away so we can get help there to fix the problem. Okay, so the hotline was slammed with obscenities, angry memes, and more. For instance, there's a, a someone tweeted, start flooding their reporting text number with these pics. And someone writes, we will fight this tyrannical overreach. And then the response was, hello, and thank you for texting NYC 311. We're here to help, but if this is an emergency, please call 911. A representative will be with you soon. So I think that's kind of a funny response to, we will fight this tyrannical overreach. And then the response to the, the text from the uh, NYC 311 was then, fuck you. And then we had another tweet that said, don't be a Karen, Saturday thoughts. Here's the number to report people for fishing or enjoying the outdoors. 1-800-I'm-a-Nazi. And then uh, someone else had, eat a bag of dicks. And NYPD source said that uh, 311 also received real dick pics. So it's basically everything we we anticipated or we were warned about with the Zoom calls. It's just so de, de, de Blasio. So de Blasio. I mean, he's he's a walking punchline, this guy. I mean, first of all, he's the only politician who's ever killed the groundhog on Groundhog Day, right? It's also, it's just so New York, like, uh, you know, the mayor asks for, so people, York, yeah. for, for people to, to sort of chime in on, you know, if you see something, say something, right? Yeah. And they just, they just send him dick pics. Yeah, you know, and also it's just Here, I saw something. Yeah, this is this the Sovietization of America. Like you know, back back in the back in the Soviet days, uh, snitching, which they called knocking. You know, Stukai like is uh, was was considered a major virtue in in the Soviet citizen, and it's now become like a thing. Like it's not don't snitch; it's, it's do snitch is is the new is the new catchword of of, of COVID era America. So. All right, so just one one little topic I'm going to write about this week, so I thought we could get into. Uh, the Atlantic Magazine did this story uh, this week. And Dan, if we could just look at the headline from this. It says, Internet Speech, this is the headline in the Atlantic, and it's, it's, a, it's a co-authored piece by a pair of professors, one named Jack Goldsmith from Harvard Law, and another one from, named Andrew Keen Woods uh, from the University of Arizona, another lawyer. Internet speech will never go back to normal. And then the subhead is, in the debate over freedom versus control of the global network, China was largely correct and the U.S. was wrong. Now, in the body of the piece, essentially what this, this uh, article argues is that the, originally the Internet was a tool of democratization, right? That because it was free, it was difficult to manage. Uh, we encouraged it spread everywhere because it was it allowed people to speak to each other, and we saw that as a good thing generally around the world. 
But later, what we found is that countries like China were innovative in being able to control the internet and, and control messaging. And what these guys are saying is that that's the right thing. And this is here's a, here's a passage from the from the piece. In the great debate of the past two decades about freedom versus control of the network. China was largely right and the United States was largely wrong. Significant monitoring and speech control are inevitable components of a mature and flourishing internet, and go governments must play a large role in these practices to ensure that the internet is compatible with society's norms and values, right? And so this is, again, we talked about this sort of at the beginning of this crisis that I was, I was worried right. about where this was, where this was going to go, right? And, and this is one of the things that uh, we're already seeing that there's there's being there's been a, a rush to start using these tools. We've seen for years now that they've they've been ramping up this idea that that the big platforms like Google and Facebook and Twitter are cooperating with the government somewhat in in uh, eliminating inauthentic content, right? And now uh, we're seeing a thing where. You know the the companies like Apple and Google are in this unprecedented partnership to stamp out uh, content that they believe is goes contrary to health edicts. Well, it's interesting because that sentence you read: um, significant mo significant monitoring and speech control are inevitable components of a mature and flourishing internet, and governments must play a large role in these practices to ensure that the internet is compatible with the society's norms and values. What's interesting about that is, you know, how sometimes I joke that like like Donald Trump and Chomsky say the same things, but their mm -hmm. their ref their framing of it is totally different. Like. When when Trump said like we're not going to do anything about Saudi Arabia because uh, killing Khashoggi because they just bought a lot of arms from us like why would we do anything about it and Chomsky right. would also say like well the reason that um, Donald Trump <laughs> about Saudi Arabia is. but in this case it's the same thing because it's like you Matt Taibbi could I could see you writing the sentence significant monitoring and speech control are an inevitable are are inevitable components of a instead of mature and flourishing internet what like over governmental overreach right um and o over the internet and governments must not play a large role in these practices to ensure that the it, you know and i could see you saying like governments play a large role in these practices precisely to make the internet compatible with norms and values right you no know, it's like you you would say the same thing but you're you would be mo be, be you would be lamenting or or warning it about this and they're just praising it yeah, and that's just a major reason why you can't have algorithmic control of the the press because the, you know they're going to confuse things, and and people are the people who are in charged with reviewing all that stuff. They're just going to be overwhelmed by the the logistical challenge of trying to sort out who's saying what and what the meanings of things are. Right. But the 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 remarkable thing about this, and and Dan, if we could look at this story. Uh, that came out this week. CNN Business did a story, the Fox News, MSNBC Mirror, Chris Hayes debunks video as Tucker Carlson hypes it. What they're talking about is a pair of doctors in, in Bakersfield, California, Dan Erickson and Artin Ma uh, Masahi. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but uh, they did a video and essentially they were citing a bunch of statistics claiming that the lethality of this this virus is less than what we thought and that it's closer to um, to flu than and they're they're arguing that uh, perhaps the lockdowns aren't necessary like I, I don't think I'm not sure that I agree with that I'm certainly staying inside my house I'm, I'm following the lockdown but they took this off YouTube 
right? They just, they removed this because it violated their community standards. And, and people like Chris Hayes, who's, who's somebody who I, I normally like, he goes on and he, he goes on this whole rant about uh, coronavirus truthers and how they want to re- they want to end the lockdowns prematurely. And, but you can't do that. This is, this is, this is why this is so dangerous. Like, if, again, if you go back to early January, look at the headlines from early January about what happened, what people were saying, experts were saying about the virus. Uh, just look at the Atlantic itself. You're likely to get coronavirus. Uh, most cases are not life-threatening, which is also what makes a virus a historic, a historic challenge to contain. Uh, Washington Post, get a grip, America. The flu is a much bigger threat than coronavirus for now. AP, uh, is the new virus more deadly than flu? Not exactly. Uh, and here's the point I'm trying to make. Journalists don't know anything. We are ignorant. That's the whole point of our jobs. We don't, we're not subject matter experts. We're totally dependent upon people who are experts to tell us what's going on. But there's groupthink in the industries that we survey, right? And so we're, part of our job is to recognize that when that's happening. And the only way we can do that is if we hear everything that's going on. If, we, if we're able to hear all the different points of view, sometimes we got to interview that, those five or six people who are saying the different thing, right? And, and check out if they're right or wrong. Like I know this from covering the financial crisis. Everybody was saying, oh, this wasn't criminality that caused this. This was, you know, like a weather event. They overinvested in mortgages and that's why things went wrong. Well, no, that's not, that turns right. out not to be what happened. You have to have everybody visible and have to have all these different kinds of ideas out there in order for us to investigate what's true and what's not true. And as you've seen, as, I, as we saw from those headlines, the views of experts change. So if, ex- if, we're, if we're eliminating speech based on what experts are saying right now, almost, almost by definition, we're going to end up excluding uh, developments. Yeah, uh, right. True. Innovations and, and new discoveries and developments. Yeah, you're right. And so this is an, I, I think this is an extraordinarily dangerous moment for, for the press in this country because yeah. what, the, what people are going to do with this disease is they're going to say, Okay, it, it's the time's over for niceties. We can't afford any of that civil liberty stuff right now. It's just not. Right. And again, I, I know I made the point about Trump's saying fire in a crowded theater and everything, but yeah. the bar has to be like extraordinarily high, like way right. higher than this. And the people having the, the internet platforms in charge of what information we do and do not say it's it's going to kill us a lot faster right. than than any of this other stuff. Well, what I what I think is interesting about this point is I feel like even people who aren't particularly pro civil liberties would be worried by this potentially because it does filter out the like I understand there are people who would say if something is going to result in the deaths of people we should not let that be said. And you and I I mean whether or not there there's a huge debate about that morally and ethically, right? But what's interesting about this thing is that even if public safety is the number one concern, forget the civil liberties thing, like, as you said, multiple ideas have to be aired in order to be taken seriously. So even within that kind of moral framework, even if you don't believe in, in um, you know, freedom of speech, it is ironic that this could possibly have the um, inverse effect by yeah. not allowing uh, people thinking outside the box to share those views. To play devil's advocate, though, again, to your point earlier, I mean, I do agree with you in terms of new ideas and innovation, but I think that people could say, well, no, that's what the experts thought now. And precisely because we no longer think that, that's why we have to have some kind of 
Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not but, saying I agree with that position, but I think I wanted to put it there because I think it's a something like, how would you push back on that? I don't think it's impossible to, but so, I wanted to. So here, here's the thing, the, the animating idea behind this whole concept that China has it right and we had it wrong and we can't allow unfettered dialogue uh, is that we're inevitably what's going to happen is you're going to have drift, right? So we saw this with, the Alex Jones thing when they took Alex Jones off the internet. Um, like I didn't, I didn't like that. I don't like Alex Jones, but, uh, but I didn't, I didn't like that because what's going to end up happening is someone's going to say, okay, well, if we took Alex Jones off the internet, well, what, how is, how is Ben Shapiro so different from Alex Jones? Right. And then, then it's going to be, how is so-and-so so different from Alex Jones? And then it's Jimmy Dore probably. Jimmy Dore. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and and so what, what these, these things always expand, uh, but and experts, they're wrong. They're constantly right. wrong. Yeah. And that's, sure, and yeah. that's, and that's a, that's a major feature of any experienced journalist will tell you this is that a huge part of our job is, is to try to figure out when, when groupthink is going on in, uh, and you know, like if you were to ask people, uh, in the in Washington, do we need to be? Do we need to have 400 bases in the Middle East? Like, why do we? Why right. do we need that? Exactly. Right. Right. 98 of the people who you could you could call who are employed who work in that field are going to tell you yes. Right. Uh, and but those people are wrong. You know, I mean, right. they just are. Yeah. Right. Or right. there's a very good argument that they're wrong. So you have you can't have a situation where there's this vanguard of experts yeah, who are telling us who are telling us what is and isn't correct um, because, because A, they're wrong, and B, what they're going to do is they're going to start expanding the definition of what's dangerous. Because for, for, sure, for sure, a couple of doctors giving a press conference in California, that's not life-threatening. Like, people are not going to go off and, like, you know, start – mainlining coronavirus because a couple of because a couple of doctors gave a presentation right. you know As we saw people are being very responsible about trump's um bleach uh <laughs> yeah they're calling right yeah they're calling yeah i mean uh, just to clarify by the way i think jimmy Dore is has nothing to do with alex jones or ben shapiro but but i use that example precisely because people will seek to compare them um, sure. By calling him a conspiracy theorist. So that's another example of the danger of letting this happen, because I think it, you know, so it, by so a lot of standards and definitions, you'd be wiping out shows on the on the right and on the left. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we've talked about this before, about how the term conspiracy theory it becomes very loosely applied. And and the thing that I really that really drives me nuts about this is is is, again, the lack of humility by by reporters, they're all jumping on this idea that uh, we we have to listen to the experts. Their word right. is Consensus. their word is gone, yeah. and, and and the full weight of our approval or disapproval, we're, we're going to throw it behind everything they say. Whereas traditionally, what 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 the press did is we stepped back and said, yeah, we're gonna we're, we'll let's test all this, let's check it all out, right, and let's not take a position really on it one way or the other, right? But that's not what's going on with this. There's just this anger and approbation. And I think a lot of, again, I think a lot of it has to do with Trump. It's just, it's, it's people have gotten mixed up in the scientific debate versus the Trump versus American right. debate. You know, it's also interesting because I always think of this in terms of the censorship stuff. Like the people who are most going to be kind of uh, at the receiving end of that are, for instance, I, people who say anything critical of Israel, um, right. or anything pro-Palestinian. 
And I think that a lot of the people who support this kind of censorship are actually people who are on the right side of that issue. And they should think about that because, again, the people, oh my God, how do I say this without say, saying the Jews run the media? Without saying we run the media there. But I do think that's a really important thing is that people need to check and figure out or see how their own politics jive with these censorship things because it's not just going to be the people who we think of as racist and toxic and offensive. It's going to be people who are, you know, have, have problematic views according to, you know, APAC. Yeah, you're, you're right. And what, what inevitably happens in these situations is that once the, once the precedent is, is established that we can just sort of eliminate certain kinds of speech because we deem it threatening or dangerous, right. is that it inevitably starts being applied to things that uh, you wouldn't agree with, that you wouldn't agree with, right? right. And, and this, this crisis is opening a door for some, some pretty radical changes in American society. And, you know, I've written a lot about the financial stuff, but this, this, is, this is scary too. What's also ironic is saying that like, they want to be a mature and flourishing internet and governments must play a large role in these practices to ensure that the internet is compatible with the society's norms and values. And like, especially with China, I mean, a lot of the, the discourse about the US versus China is that we have freedoms, like that's exactly. value, right? So it's kind of ironic that people are saying now uh, our norms and values include you know, cracking down on, on dissent or on, you know, include well, government overreach. Right. And this, th this is exactly the mistake we made during the war, war and terror period where we said, okay, well, this is too dangerous. We have to abandon the, the, you know, all of our prohibitions against torture, um, you know, against indefinite detention, against all these things, because we, it, it, we have to win this war. But that was what gave us the moral authority. Like, you know, the, the, if you eliminate what's different between your society and these other societies that you're claiming are undemocratic, then what, what's the point? And now, and now if we're going to, if we're going to become China in the service of, of what exactly? Like, I'm not sure what, what, what the, what the end game right. is there. I mean, they would have to, I think to make this argument, which I disagree with, but uh, if I were giving them uh, editorial advice, I think they would have to say that this is a conflicting norm that we have conflicting norms and values, right? They should at least say, where, where uh, while we have freedom and uh, free press and dissent, that's an American value, but unfortunately, so is protecting citizens. You know right. what I mean? Like, I, I don't agree with that claim, but that would have some coherence because you can't really pick and choose which norms and values you're upholding. Right, except that these people think you can. Right, right, right. But they'd have yeah. to acknowledge that at least that there's like a that there's some tension there. We saw this with that. A controversy about the NBA. A lot of the criticism that China would would normally be getting for its uh, like just awful approach to to human rights, uh, political freedom, all of that has been muted by our economic interest uh, in that country. So if if you know, I grew up in uh, like a decade before you when the Soviet Union was just this limitless evil enemy that was symbolized by the unfeeling Ivan Draco and Rocky, Rocky IV, right? Uh, and the reason for that is we just didn't do a whole lot of business with the, with the, with the Soviet Union. Sure, right. right? We so were there fighting were, there a Cold War with them, right? We were fighting a Cold War with them. The money was, the, 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 the financial interest was in opposing uh, the right, Soviet exactly. Union. Yeah. Right. So um, the, this idea that, uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't agree with the, the, the relentless blaming of China for this virus in the way that the right, what right wing is doing. But, but on, the, on the freedom side, on, on the political freedom side, any suggestion that we should move in that direction, I think is insane. Well, I, I think, mean, yeah, I, I think it's funny. It's 
this this show that is such a theme in the show is like intention and um I do think that they're both of those things happen like there is definitely a whitewashing of China of the the Chinese government but then there's also like selective outrage in the other direction um mm -hmm. that we see from like at least uh rhetorically from from certain people who act as if they're you know good guys and bad guys and I think of people like who who talk about Israel as if they're a beacon, a bastion of democracy, and China, like it's this, you know, this uh, what dystopic country, which you could even say it is the, the, the dystopic government, but there is a lack of of um, consistency. I just worry, like my my secret worry about China always is that China is the model that corporate America likes. Okay, it it, it is it is a it is a a capitalist uh, paradise. Uh, because it's essentially state-sponsored private enterprise where all the profits are privatized and the you know the, the losses are socialized. The labor force has no rights. There's no political freedom. Uh, there's no speech freedom. There's absolute control of uh, of the internet. Uh, and there's a lot of people I think who would like that model. You know, I, don't, I think that's an extreme way of looking at it. But um, yeah. but th this is this is an indication of, of like where the certain parts of the, the sort of intelligentsia in this country that's that where their heads are at. So it's an interesting yeah. argument. It's just yeah. something to keep an eye on. So we have a little bit more coming up. Do you want to uh, talk about who our next guest is going to be? Oh my God. So excited. Rashida Tlaib, who is a Michigan co member of Congress. Uh, she is really great. She just, she's kick-ass. She's uh, outspoken on so many issues, including Palestine. She is Palestinian American, including, um, immigration, including um, the environment. She's just, she's a member of the squad, the so-called squad and- All right, excellent. Well, let's, uh, let, let, let's go to that conversation right now. Yeah. Welcome. Thank you so much for talking to us. Congresswoman, member of Congress, Rashida Tlaib. We're so excited to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you have something really exciting going on. Can you tell us about the briefing? Oh, uh, so we are really trying to come together on um, exposing um, some of the, you know, I guess, broken systems and things that we have to do to combat, um, you know, COVID, uh, like the economic divide, some of the most vulnerable communities and try to really put a human face to it and try to shed light to some of these really bold progressive ideas around combating poverty, combating the broken healthcare system, um, what's going on with mass incarceration. So I'm really happy. I know Rep. Elhan uh, Omar talked about canceling rent and the importance of that. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley talked about, you know, what is going on with our correction system and folks that are incarcerated right now and how we need to really work together to, um, you know, make sure that they're protected as well. And, uh, you know, there's so many of these great, bold, again, aggressive ideas that, you know, many folks, uh, both sides of the aisle across the country, outside of Congress, have been really supportive of. But, but basically, the idea is you're going to have regular briefings on the, on, on the internet, basically, that are going to cover each one of these specific sort of on-the-ground topics, how people are coping with the with the disaster, what's, what is and isn't a, a problem. I know you've talked a lot about things like you know, people being able to afford their water bills. Is it going to be divided up by topic? Like, how, how is it going to work? 
Yeah, what we're hoping to do is look at a lot of my colleagues and what they've been pushing for. Uh, you know, I've been pushing water as a human right, as you probably know. We have thousands of folks right now in, in Detroit and even in Flint and other areas around Michigan that don't have access to water right now. Uh, during a pandemic where we're telling people to wash their hands 10 times a day, um, are, you know, don't have access to water. And so we're really pushing forward and got a number of my colleagues to support that. But yeah, it's really a lot of these great, again, bold ideas around addressing, again, the economic divide, the broken systems, uh, you know, structural racism. Uh, and yeah, we're hoping to really try to take, take a deeper dive instead of just kind of the headlines that folks will read, but taking a deeper dive of what actually we're, we're trying to change. And a lot of it's structural change. I mean, water shutoffs, people don't understand, is didn't just come about. This is something that's been tackling. 15 million people across the nation are impacted by water, sh water shutoffs. And we, um, you know, see one of 20 Americans that are impacted by some sort of water shutoff. So yeah, it's absolutely critically important. It's so interesting that, you know, I've been covering the, the financial side of the rescue, you know, with the massive uh, program of Fed purchasing and everything. Why couldn't they have also done something like, let's have a moratorium on shutoffs. Let's, let's have a moratorium on, on people being, you know, evicted. I mean, they do, they do that for certain types of people if you have an agency-backed mortgage, but it seems like they could have done immediately with one stroke uh, things that had a dramatic impact on people who are kind of at the forefront of, of this problem. Absolutely. You know, you, you get the sense of urgency out there. Uh, and I think it's just this disconnect with a lot of my colleagues and folks that are actually, you know, in the back room making these decisions. And that's what's been really frustrating. Uh, even though moratoriums, which I'm fully supportive of, you know, I push back against a little bit saying, yes, we do need that. But in three months or four months, a year from now, when the pandemic is over, those bills are still due. And that's why Automatic Boost to Communities Act, that's what I talked about in the last briefing about reoccurring payments, $2,000 a month for every single person in the United States, every single neighbor, not to be, uh, you know, right now it's so restrictive in a way that I feel like it leaves a lot of our folks out. And we put it on a debit card. You know, a lot of folks don't realize, I mean, 25% of uh, uh, folks are underbanked or unbanked. And even the debit card is so transformative in that way that, you know, we want to keep people in their homes and safe. They can use it online. It can, you know, so many things that, again, they don't have access to because of this pandemic. Uh, and we're really getting away these fees and these other things. Like even my neighbors who get checks are going down to the store to get it cash and getting like $300 knocked off of it. So they're left with $900, similar to other kind of bank fees that are involved when folks go and, and try to, again, work with these institutions with the debit card, it's there. What I love is that Automatic Boost to Communities Act is really taking a huge wave of support from local elected officials. You know, many of these folks are nonpartisan. They say, look, the way to stimulate our local economy is putting money in the pockets of real people. We don't hoard it. A uh, lot like corporations. Right. We actually spend it. I mean, that's a bad or good thing, whatever it is. But you give us money, we're going we're gonna to put it right back into our local communities, our local businesses, small businesses. And so I'm really excited about it. And I, and I think what they love the most is that it's sustainable because even after the pandemic, we recharge those debit cards with $1,000 a month. Uh, a year after. Can you tell us a little bit about your idea for the Emergency First Responder Corps and what, what, what yeah. that was all about? I mean, look, I think this is a really great time to transform. And, and what I love about our country sometimes, and, and the part that nobody really sees that I think is beautiful, uh, because there's so much brokenness and so much really terrible, horrific history. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I know is when there's a call for like people need your help, 
people want to jump on board. They want to be part of like a Peace Corps, AmeriCorps and so forth. So many of um, uh, folks across the country are already like in their own living rooms, in their kitchen, sewing masks. Uh, they're already doing what they call wellness check-in. I mean, what I did on my campaign side is I, I sent out text messages said, can you check on three people? A majority of like 60% of people responded, yes, I'll check on three people. Uh, and I love that. And I think that there's such a, a great way to kind of bring people together and use, you know, what, you know, we're always talking about economics and we're always talking about, uh, you know, assets, corporations, all these other things. And, but we never talk about people and how people can contribute. Uh, and it doesn't cost anything to really just like get people to bring them on board and employ them and get them to, to again, uh, go to some of the most vulnerable, some of the communities that are completely disconnected because of the coronavirus right now. So what, what does the act do, though, exactly? Like oh, so it creates a core of folks to get them to come and actually go to uh, some of the most disconnected communities, maybe rural, maybe even some urban neighborhoods. Um, and, and just like you see with Peace Corps and Miracle kind of programs, you have these folks uh, basically being um, uh, hired in to come and, and do this specifically to uh, be able to uh, reach people, get the resources that they need. It's almost like getting like social workers on, on wheels, but like legs and, right. and getting them up. Yeah. And so I really, um, I'm inspired by that and, you know, was, was really thrilled when organizations had done already polling on it and people were really interested in it. And so, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping, and I had a, a previous call with the caucus and somebody brought it up and uh, I was like, Oh, I've been talking about that. And it's exactly what we need to be doing. I, I'll tell you, 17 million people are unemployed right now or through the un unemployment uh, have submitted a request for unemployment benefits. You know, that that's just 17 million alone just this, this month. We don't know what's going to happen next month. And then we have a third of our neighbors that couldn't pay rent in April, uh, about three or close to like 4 million people couldn't pay their mortgage this month. There is a huge, great need uh, to do something transformative and creating this core is exactly what we need to do. I mean, folks constantly say, Oh, you know, people need to get, this is a great way. Let's put them to work. They want to work. Let's mm -hmm. do it. Let's do it. Let's us take the leadership and actually do it. And what a great way, uh, and, and really trying to, you know, uplift people and be able to, uh, provide again, the services that they need. That direct human contact is so lacking sometimes in everything that we do. And this is a way we can really, uh, benefit from it. Have you have you sensed during this crisis that uh, the conventional wisdom on the Hill has changed about a lot of the, these fundamental transformative ideas that you know that that you've espoused for a while? But for instance, yeah. you know the speaker is suddenly talking about guaranteed income uh, like it's not crazy, which is something I would never have imagined in a million years uh, happening this soon. And, you know, that's a, it's part of your Automatic Boost to Communities Act, recurring payments. Is the, de is the depth of the seriousness of this crisis causing any kind of real change in thinking, or, or, is, it, or is it just a political shift that you're seeing? Well, I think the shift is primarily because I've never thought it was crazy. I thought it was transformative, right? And but I think the shift—it's not a shift. It's 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 what we've already seen in the past, which is, you know, Congress is reactionary. Mm. Uh, we we wait uh, until something like this happens for us to have an awakening, uh, to, for us to realize, oh, you know, more African Americans are dying in Michigan. Than from COVID than any other community. They make up 40% deaths uh, of COVID are African-Americans in Michigan, even though Michigan's African-American population makes is like less than 15%. All of a sudden people are talking about structural racism. 
They're talking about what is happening where African-Americans are dying at a higher rate. What is happening with our healthcare system that we have hospitals closing down? When you think to yourself, why would hospitals be closing down when we have more people that are sick now and more need? Why? Because it is not profitable to take care of sick people in our country. I mean, these are things that, again, my colleagues are now finally reacting to and finally saying we have to do something about it. It's unfortunate because the one thing I think one of my colleagues came up to me, I think it was only like a few weeks that I was there and we were doing these one minute speeches now sitting there kind of looking over my notes and he goes, Hey kid, you know, he's older. Most of them are older than me. And he said, kid, you know, how, how do you like it so far? And I said to him, one thing I, I noticed is the lack of urgency. Like I came from the streets, like the ground up, like, talking to residents saying, we need $15 minimum wage. We need this, Rashida, we need this. And, and you know, do something about healthcare. And I get there and everybody's like, wait. And right. I'm like, what are we waiting for? And I just hope, you know, I read a, a great quote from um, Sonia Renee Taylor. And she said, um, you know, I hope we don't go back to normal because that wasn't normal. And mm -hmm. she talked about how, you know, if it's not corporate greed, to hate and to all of the things that are just so painful, uh, you know, for me of forms of, of oppression that we've seen so, uh, so relevant, uh, prevalent through, through communities like mine, that she said, this is a time to create a new garment. And I just hope we do. Uh, I hope that, uh, you know, we listen and understand that that wasn't normal, that everything that has been broken, every single systems that folks have been, you know, on the, on the halls of, of Congress right there in, in, in the Capitol saying, please do something about these, this, do something about this issue. All of them are now, uh, you know, uh, wondering, is this going to be the moment that people are finally awakened and they're going to react and do something about it? You've said, you know, pe people need a bailout, right? Like that, that's, that's a theme that you've, you've hit on. I heard you talking about it. Uh, I, I think it was in the briefing today. Uh, but the conception of the CARES Act, um, it feels like it's a little bit of a trickle-down bailout in some ways. I mean, the Federal Reserve portion of it is heavily, it's based on the idea that we have to prop up the capital markets, we have to make sure that the employers are stable, and that uh, all, all of that is, an, is immediate massive financial aid that, it, that didn't take any kind of logistical wrangling to get the money out there. But the money to getting to ordinary people, there's a million steps. It's fraught with problems up and down. Um, do you think that there's, there might be a rethink of how to, how to do this going forward? Yeah, because the money keeps running out. Mm -hmm. uh, the money keeps running out from small business. I mean, I heard by the end of the week, we probably would run out of all the money that we just put into the recent um, small business um, administration, like loans and so forth. The funding for hospitals is running out. The funding for testing is running out. Uh, and, and so the, it doesn't ever, it, it seems, you know, people don't understand it's structural change, not throwing money at something that is broken. And, and one of my, you know, I, I just had Detroit small business restaurants talking to me about how, what a risk for them to even apply for those small business loans, right? And, and whether or not it's going to be forgiven and whether or not uh, because it's so, so uncertain, they don't know what the future entails. So it's so hard for them to make decisions. It's just all broken, and so to throw money something at something that's broken and not really connected to what is happening uh, is very hard. So the agreement, continued agreement, is just it doesn't go too far enough. And what I mean by that is not just the dollar amount, but actual real accountability, structural change. You know, I mean, why can't we 
um, get a list of, you know, folks that, that are getting the, these dollars and then asking them how many of the people they're employed. Because one of the things that we learned from the Great Recession is we bailed out all these folks. And then what did they do? They, they went and gutted people's health care. They gutted our neighbors that worked for them. They said, they're, oh, we're going to keep everybody. But then you went and gutted their health care. You gutted their pay. You, you took away their retirement. I mean, this is, this is what the federal government paid for? I mean, mm-hmm. is, is for them to do all those things, these painful things that we end up having to pay for at the end, again, uh, because we have to get food assistance uh, uh, increased so we can get them food assistance or to cover the underinsured or un- uninsured. So, you know, all of it is, is this cycle. And so I, I just hope that there is an awakening. I mean, the chairwoman Maxine Waters today had a call and it was great because everyone, I think, was on the pa- same page, you know, and she was in agreement that we needed recurring payments, that we needed, I'm sorry, it's the call of prayer right now. Okay. <laughs> it's Ramadan too. So. And so it was all of these amazing, you know, ideas around in these bold positions around like, what do we do about medical debt right now? And what do we do about student debt? And there was real uh, conversations about, well, this is the time that maybe we need some of the structural change. You know, how are we dealing with? economic injustices and, and some of the other issues. I mean, we're even talking about how do we deal with environmental racism, right. uh, you know, and water access to water and, and that impacts a lot of communities of color. Well, I mean, it's, it's crisis, right? But do you see, do you see things shifting already in terms of um, the willingness of your colleagues to act or consider ideas that they haven't before? Yeah, I know. I think there is an appetite. Like I said, um, you know, there seemed to be a lack of urgency before. And now there seems to be like, no, we we have a real problem here and it's a pandemic and uh, there's too many uncertains and too much, um, uh, I think, brokenness right now that that they, they realize they can't keep it all broken anymore, that they have to do something. Yeah. Do you think it's a moral awakening or a strategic one? Not that you can. No, I, I, I don't. I don't know what to call it, but I yeah. again, it's reacting, reacting, right? And and that's one thing that I, you know, again, I've only been a year there a year, uh, but for for my community, we've already been waiting, right? I mean, we're the frontline communities. I always tell people, you want to see what doing nothing looks like? You come to my district. You come and see. I'll show you what doing nothing on on the climate crisis, doing nothing on poverty, doing nothing on public education, like you want to see the deterioration of how we invest in our local governments who are literally going to go bankrupt uh, because they, you know, their fire uh, firefighters are getting COVID. They don't know how to make sure they get access to healthcare and be able to still provide services. I mean, all of this is to say, if anything, they are now reacting to it. I don't know where it's coming from other than it seems to be a pattern again from Congress that they wait until there's a, an emergency. Do you find any irony in this? I mean, the, in the last, if- Throughout the last year, covering the the presidential election and the Democratic primary, there was so much resistance within the party to a lot of these ideas that are suddenly now seeming like they're obvious and necessary. Is there talk about that within the caucus that God maybe we we shouldn't have had that discussion that way last year? Or I think we don't have time for it. Uh, mm. We're we're not doing that. Uh, I'm really proud of my caucus that we're not doing that. Uh, we're we're just saying, hey, you know, I actually have a bill on that. Mm-hmm. Oh, you do? I said, yep, I have a bill on that. Or or another colleague today said, no, I actually have a bill about the student debt issue, and this specifically handles that. I have another, you know, colleague that's talking about, well, you know, this is what I was trying to do within maternal health, you know, for Black maternal health for women, uh, especially during this crisis. So what it what it is is 
a lot of folks are now coming together and, and I think we're listening differently to each other uh, and, and applying it to, again, what's going on now with the pandemic. As someone who was um, obviously uh, part of the Sanders campaign, how have you been able to, um, we talked to Nina Turner last week who said yeah. that she was, you know, kind of, it, she was acknowledging people for mourning, but um, also looking forward. So how do you think that people can, uh, who had all that energy and passion around this Not Me Us movement, what can everyone do now? And especially in terms of uh, 2020, any advice? So I, you know, look, I'm, I, before I even got here, I was doing issue campaigning and I really think that's what moves people to the polls. You know, what I saw a huge, I saw 80% increase in and folks coming to the polls uh, during my last election. Yes, because I was maybe partly on the ballot, but mostly because of uh, the fact that we were doing promote the vote and also legalizing marijuana. And, you know, there was three really progressive um, ballot resolutions, uh, ballot measures on the, on the ballot. I feel like so much of what Sanders was about was kind of issue campaigning. You know, he really put Medicare for all the national stage, really put a lot of the issues that we've been talking about that nobody really wanted to talk about is, you know, with a, a sense of urgency that I felt like uh, was so inspiring that he gets it. Like people don't have time to wait. Uh, uh, I, and so that that is something that I'm continuing to work on the grassroots level. You know, our progressive caucus within the Michigan Democratic Party was like, what now? What? I said, what do you mean? What? We've been, what have we been pushing for before he came along? The same stuff. That's what you continue to do. And so I think it's really hard people to believe that, but that's exactly what we've been doing uh, constantly. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really thrilled that if, if there was anything for me, it's like seeing what is actually possible, that this world that is possible to have a candidate who didn't take any corporate dollars to reach that level of the possibility to become president of the United States, again, without having to sell a piece of their soul or switch or give it, you know, it was so refreshing. It was so like, oh, yes, finally, like somebody will speak like, you know, even if he was kind of like your uncle or your grandpa yeah. or whatever. Um, yes, I'm a Bernie. But it was something you know, that there was a desire and a need for it and people could feel like they could breathe. And it's like, oh, he's going to take, he's going to say it. Right. And he does. And he kept saying it. And uh, I, I just think that that's what we're going to miss and that's what we're going to mourn. Um, but, you know, it doesn't keep us from continuing our, you know, advocacy on the ground and movement work. I have to ask this question. So I, yeah. I, I covered a little bit of, um, I covered the Trump campaign in 2016 and a little bit of his rallies last year. Uh, and heading into this year, it, when it when it was looking like Bernie might be the the nominee, uh, he was Trump was spending a lot of time talking about the squad. He was, and uh, to, to be fair, not so much about you. It was much more about Congresswoman Omar and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. But were you? I don't think he can pronounce my name. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. That's po that's possible. Sometimes I did say uh uh uh, and I'm like, oh, you can't remember. <laughs> yeah, the right, the right. one from Michigan. Yeah. yeah. Um, were you were you pre prepared for that? I mean, was that a thought no. that was entering your head? Like, yeah, I'm going to be a character I, in the general election. Like, I, and this is not like a thing to you all, but I really don't spend time trying to think about what's going on in his mind mm. or what is he doing or how. You know, all I can do is continue to outwork the hate. I, while he tweets, I work, you know, right. that's all I can continue to do. And, you know, was I surprised or whatever? I, I don't know if I am anymore of anything. Uh, but I, I know to myself, that's exactly what he wants. He wants me to react. He wants me to distract, you know, distract from the work that I need to do was to continue to speak the truth about, 
the incompetence uh, in continuing to letting people down, every single promise, every, you know, the lawlessness, all those kinds of things. And so, you know, I, I'm not your, you know, typical polished politician. I'm more, again, I'm more of an advocate and a, and a, and a social worker at heart. But, you know, all I continue to do is, you know, push forward uh, what, you know, my residents are asking me to do and keep moving forward without allowing anything that he does to, to distract us. I, I think that, you know, folks ask me all the time to come and I don't, I, I can't read minds. I don't know what he's thinking. All I know is that it hurts people when he continues to do it because it might be targeting me, but there are a lot of people that find it very painful when they see the president of the United States attacking people solely based on their ethnicity or their faith. So, so I, I want to follow up on that because I think it's such a refreshing, interesting point. Yeah. The, 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 everybody uh, in, the, in the Trump era who engages with him, it ends up going wrong some, somewhere. And it seems like uh, you and also uh, Senator Sanders, that his strategy was always to kind of just talk past him, continue focusing on the issues, yeah. right? Just don't even acknowledge, don't think about it one way or the other. Don't even, yeah. don't even worry about it. Uh, is that the best way to deal with Donald Trump? In other words, you know, it, 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 politically and, and, and morally and ethically and, other, and all other ways, is that the best way to handle that kind of politician? I don't know. I, all I know is that's what works for me and my mm -hmm. district and the way I've dealt with it before. Uh, you know, I've, I've dealt with bullies before, corporate bullies, um, the Koch brothers, uh, the billionaires that were upset that I didn't support tax cuts for them. And, you know, some even, you know, trying to recall me while I'm in the state house. All I kept doing is continue to organize people and show them that, you know, people power, the power of the people is way more intelligent than you, <laughs> much more loving, uh, you know, really get it and really want to make people's lives better and they're genuine about it. They're real about it. And I just, you know, want to continue to uplift that versus getting stuck on, you know, trying to read people's minds. Um, any thoughts on the Biden campaign and uh, what progressives can do? Uh, if, if you think he needs to, obviously there's these allegations, but if you think he needs to address them. Yeah. Look, you know, I, I hope you're asking my male colleagues to uh, if he should address them, but absolutely. Look, I, uh, they're serious. We will when we have a male Congress. Yeah. <laughs> Please do. Um, but really on a serious note, they're serious. Um, and my sister who counsels um, survivors of sexual assault, uh, domestic violence, uh, you know, I hear the horrific stories, what's happening from employer to, to even not only just, you know, I think family members, she says, you know, these are really serious allegations. And if anything, you know, ignoring them is not the way to, to, to move forward uh, for healing um, for any of survivors out there that will, you know, the, the, to me, it, it really matters uh, as a leader, as somebody that wants to be president of the United States, how you proceed with this. This is something extremely serious and it's still happening to women, young women um, uh, right now. And, 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 and we, we want to know what you're thinking about this and, and whether or not he's taking it very seriously. Looks like the approach is not to do that, but to, to be quiet and deny, <laughs> deny, deny. But yes, hopefully he'll listen to this. Yeah. Anything else you want to share with our listeners, viewers? No, sure? you know, just, um, you know, uh, African-American Baptist pastor in my district said something really profound. He said to me, this is uh, a couple of years ago, but I really think it resonates now is that, you know, our country's not divided, but we're disconnected. And I feel in so many ways 
uh, this pandemic is this opportunity to connect with each other in a human way, social distancing, of course, in a careful way. But I hope people understand that we're all in this together. But what I mean by that is don't think that this only impacts your family or others, but it really impacts everything that we touch around us. And so I just hope that we use this opportunity to connect with each other and really show up for each other. So All right. Thank you so much. And, yeah, uh, and good, so good much. luck with everything you do. Yeah, thank you thanks, so much. Take care. Be safe. Thank you. <laughs> you know what? We learned a lot. We, we learned something today. And, you know, her, she, she gave a lot of really interesting answers about, you know, the kind of disparity in the bailout, but also, you know, the, the about the, the Tara Reid story. She yeah. was pretty upfront. And I think, you know, what, what your what your question gets to is that there's there's going to be substantial dialogue within the Democratic yeah. Party about how to handle this going forward. And it's not going to be something that people are not going to talk about anymore. It, right. it seems pretty yes. clear. And I think now we know that their their approach, right, we know from there's this BuzzFeed piece and their official approach is to just d- deny everything. Right. That's not workable. And also the initial, you know, this is a weaponization of Me Too thing, which uh, the Republicans are surely going to flip that on them uh, right. come come general election time. And but we'll, we'll see when when that happens. We can we can talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. But, uh, and then this frustrating thing where the mainstream media, I don't even know what to call it. The mainstream media like refuses to talk about something and then only the people in on the left and the right talk about it and then they get to like um stigmatize it as a fringe thing well we've talked about this about multiple other show uh, issues on the show right like if you if you don't talk about x y and z and you 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 ignore it and then it only appears and on you know consortium or fox news or whatever it is you can't just say oh that it's it's bad because it appeared in that in that news outlet which is what which is what happens with a lot of issues these days so that that, that's a common feature of this this media landscape so but that was interesting to hear her talk about that so all right great stuff we're gonna have a a lot of interesting things to talk about next week as well so uh, thanks for tuning in uh listen to us subscribe Buy our merchandise. Buy our merch, buy our stuff, give us suggestions. I think we should make t-shirts that say give a shit right now. Give a shit right now, yeah. I think that would work. For Nina, yeah. yeah. We have yeah. to say Nina Turner. Nina Turner, yeah. unuseful idiot. Right. Not us, me. <laughs> Not our- us, me. I like no. that. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, so, thing, yeah. that's so America. I love that. That's so America. All right. We're, we're, we're going to sell that. We're going to sell it to you. Uh, so... Uh, thanks for tuning in anyway. Uh, yeah. Listen to listen to us. Listen to us next week. And uh, don't listen to Pod Save America. Oh, my God. Do um, not listen to them. All right. Thanks very much for uh, for listening, for tuning in. And we'll uh, we'll see you next week. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.